This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. And welcome to episode 59 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking beautiful in blue today, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. Well, you say handsome, you're handsome too, honey, because you're <laughs> sitting over there in Cambridgeshire. This is Thordis Maria Sophia Friedrichsen, everybody. And you can probably guess now, the guest who's joining us for the first time on the Talking Dirty podcast, why we do middle names. Because between us, we have quite a lot. But Tom Brown, head gardener at West Dean, do you have any middle names? Yeah, so we could say Thomas Alfred Brown, which kind of puts me in the bracket of being a Chelsea designer, I think, if I make that sound <laughs> like that, doesn't it? Um, so, yes, I could be referred to as Thomas Alfred Brown. Um, we would like to see you on the main avenue at Chelsea, Thomas Alfred Brown. They wouldn't have me. They'd throw me up for being too crass, I'm sure. You know, I'd like to know one thing. When is it that names like Alfred are going to become fashionable again? Because Arthur has, and I've got Herbert, you see, and, you know, I mean, they could become fashionable again. Give it two years, Tom. Let's see. Matter yeah. of time. It's got to start somewhere. Maybe this yep. is it. Yep. <laughs> Now, we've been really excited about getting you on the podcast for a long time. Obviously, you're very busy, but we've pinned you down. West Dean, what a place. For people who haven't been lucky enough to visit or don't know much about it, just explain a bit about this glorious place where you've been head gardener for a couple of years now, I think. Yeah, just over two, two and a bit years now. And it's massive. It's about 100 acres. And it's a really, really special place. And in terms of the sort of physical garden, if you like, I, I break it down into three component parts. So probably the most famous part is the walled garden with our 13 large Victorian glass houses with six, uh, 26 different component sections within that so each section will have a different type of plant community um, and we've got a large kitchen garden and a fruit collection of over 100 apples that we sort of house within that wall garden setting and then we've got 30 acres of college grounds which sit around the main college building so West Dean is principally an arts and crafts and conservation college so we've got this really artistic hub right in the middle of everything so with the garden around the college and in the wall garden we try and reflect all those things that are going on within that building and then to add to that we've got a 40 acre arboretum which stretches up the valley so we're probably in the nice deep pocket of soil at the bottom of the valley but the further you go up into the arboretum, you're almost verging on pure chalk. So it's really interesting to go up there and see the different trees that are quite happy survive in that kind of environment. So, so yeah, West Dean is huge. But what I think is really special about it is the atmosphere and the feel of the place. It's got a lovely sort of campus community feel, a very creative space, which, um, which I find a very exciting part of, um, of, uh, of working here, actually. Wow. I mean, we, we often joke to Alan that he's got his 32 acres to look after and that is a lot and it keeps him busy and obviously you have got a, an extensive team but to be head gardener of this amazing vast site that encompasses so much. Massive massive sort of bit of pressure on me really and also taken over from Jim Buckland and Sarah Wayne sort of two iconic horticulturalists um, and have achieved so much here so 
having a bit of identity complex really because I can't work out whether I've got to be Jim or Sarah um, <laughs> each day and I think with the glass houses and trying to get to grips with things going on in the wall garden which is a very intense horticultural sort of space to be in I have been for the first year I was Sarah for most of the time so you know uh, and I'm just starting to now become a little bit more Jim about everything and getting out into the the landscape because setting up some of the processes with new members of the team a slightly reduced team it's taken a huge amount of energy and to get to grips with that and also the glass house collections I mean the tropical house collections are vast and the fern collections so I've really had to sort of get to grips with them very quickly so look out landscape here I come I can be a bit more Jim <laughs> now. <laughs> Alan, it's not often you have acre envy or indeed glass house envy, but I'm assuming you're having both at the moment. <laughs> no, I'm not having acre envy. I, I mean, I think, you know, 32 acres is, is plenty enough for me to look after. And um, I mean, uh, no, I don't have acre envy, greenhouse envy, possibly glass house envy, maybe um, because I think maybe in a couple of years, maybe I'm going to lose a glass house. Now, quite what we replace it with, I don't know. But I think, you know, it's come to the end of its days and, you know, these things have happened and it, it, we have to change it. So we'll see. But, um, you know, every time you have another glass house, it's another glass house to look after all the plants in it. And I mean, you know, glass house gardening, everybody says, oh, you're so lucky. It's very intensive. And I and think until you've done it, and Tom, you're nodding sagely there. Yeah. Until you've actually done it and had to do it, you don't realise just how much is involved. Very much. And, and if you've got acre envy, I'm quite happy to give you a few. Um, you can have some. <laughs> uh, but uh, in terms of glass house, I liken it to sort of spinning plates. You know, those sort of circus performers yeah. that go along and spin plates. With glass house gardening, you're constantly backwards and forwards along the line of plates. Just keep spinning them. Because if they start to wobble, it takes you ages to then get that control back again. So I think yeah. you can't take your eye off the ball for one second under glass. Um, so you're right. Very intensive, Alan. And um, yeah, trying to keep on top of it. It's a real, a real challenge. Thankfully, I've got a lovely lady called Kelly that helps me with the glass houses. I'm sure she's part machine the way she works. So um, yeah, she's been tremendous. And you, you know, you say that it's a lot of pressure, but you've got obviously an extensive history and, uh, and a great pedigree for doing this. That's why you got the job in the first place. Yeah, I, th I think it's, um, yeah, I had an interesting sort of background, both at, at Wisley. So I worked at Wisley for about 10 years and did a lot of the floral ornamental department, as it was known then, and worked under Jim Gardner as the curator and David Jewell, who was my one of yeah. my big influences, uh, who's now at Hilliers and uh, Jim England in the trials department latterly. So had a really good experience. And it was great for me as a, a young person to be at Wisley because there was all these opportunities that kept kept coming up. So made the most of that and worked my way up to senior supervisor of the trials department. And then had this opportunity in 2009 to be a head gardener at Parham House. So I got to the stage at Wisley where I was became very specialised in what I did. And I was very conscious that horticulturally you need to be a bit of a master of all trades, whether that be fruit, glass, borders, um, vegetables, what have you. So I wanted to strike out and sort of prove what I could do, you know, build, build the brand a little bit of what kind of gardener I was. So I was lucky enough to get the opportunity at Parham and the garden was need, in the need of a bit of energy. So built a team and a very sort of creative experimental culture at Parham, which we're very proud of. And the team are friends that I still keep in contact and go and have a few shandies with every so often still. Um, and then a couple of years ago, my son is now sort of coming up for 14. 
and was moving to secondary school and making that transition. And I knew Jim and Sarah very well because it was just down the road. And yeah, started talking to Westine about, about making that move. So made that move in May, two years ago. And uh, yeah, never looked back really. And, and then the pandemic hit and all the fun and games that came after that. So I had a lot of really good experiences at Wisley, managed to hone those at Parham. So yeah, so I've kind of got, um, got reasonably broad shoulders in which to take a lot of this grief and aggravation. <laughs> yeah, and a, a great range of experience so that when it comes to those many glass houses and your arboretum and your walled garden, you've got all that experience and obviously a vast array of plant knowledge as well. And we are all about the plants here on Talking Dirty. I can see various bits and bobs sort of poking into the camera on the video version. So do you want to show us some of the treats and treasures that you've brought along today? Sure. Well, I mean, one of the projects that we are working on, because at Westin there's an awful lot of box um, topiary, and we are now pincer moved from caterpillar and blight. So we are really suffering with box blight. So quite vast areas of the garden are sort of dying off. So we're having to be quite creative and reimagine those spaces so my boss said to me about the gardening courses here what kind of courses are people going to want to do in three or five years time and I think working or gardening without water is going to be one of those things so one of the projects that we've started is a dry meadow so we're clearing an, an area over the autumn and we've grown an awful lot of perennials from seed and the idea is we're going to establish them with a bit of water and then let them this community sort of get on with it really and keep dropping new species in and just seeing how this dynamic garden will work but I've got Canon Went which is just yeah. starting which has got a lovely sort of transparency and movement about it and people can get very sniffy about coloured echinacea and I was sort of one of those um, but the trial at Wisley where everybody thought they were going to be there for five minutes actually were there for five years and, and persisted really well but this is a yellow one called Paradiso Yellow which we've grown from seed so a lot of these coloured echinaceas are very accessible to everybody and Good old Dianthus carthusanorum, very easy from seed. Um, and this gypsophilia species, this is Pacifica, which might not show up very well on the, on the screen, but it's incredibly delicate, upright and robust. So with a lot of these plants, they're gonna be grown really hard. So they're not gonna be given food and water and compost. They're gonna be told to get on with it and the survival of the fittest. And this Alcia, I went to Graham Goff's garden, Marchant's Plants, a couple of weeks ago and spoke to him about it. And he gave me this Alcia officinalis alba, which is going to provide a nice accent. So we're just working on trying to propagate some of that just to increase the numbers because it's such a big landscape. Um, threes and fives aren't going to cut it. So I need to start looking at bigger numbers. So and the way to generate that is through seed. So uh, it's been it's been a really rewarding process, actually. So rather than just get a lorry load of stuff arriving on the Monday and planting it on the Tuesday and saying, ta-da, there's a garden. You know, we've really had to engage with the project and grow everything thing first. Yeah. And I think that's really exciting as well, because we often talk about um, how expensive gardening can be. And particularly when you're trying things out, if you go and buy a trolley load of plants, particularly if they then die, it's, um, it's, a, it's a horrible experience. And it can be quite off-putting if you're kind of early on or, or you know, later into your gardening life. And I love growing stuff from seed. It's so exciting. And it's amazing what you can do with it as well. I mean, just looking at those things there is it's wonderful. And it, it feels quite a, a forward-thinking way of gardening. So. I've got that way with tree planting as well. So rather than 
pin, put all your eggs in one basket with say three or four species in a particular space, actually to create a community of 12 or 15, what you're saying is that some of those are going to do really well, one or two of them aren't going to do so well, but the fact that you're spreading your risk, that's fine. And if we get really dry summers or really wet winters or my soil's not quite right, it doesn't matter because most, most of them will be fine. But the ones that perhaps aren't suited to your garden aren't going to make it. And if it, all it's cost you is a couple of quid and a packet of seed, not, not the end of the world. And, and when we're planting trees in the park, I was putting some oak trees in the park and being very considered and thinking, okay, this trees, they're going to be there for a couple of hundred years and, you know, losing night's sleep over where this tree is going to go. And this forester said to me, what are you doing? Don't worry about it. He said, you don't know what the weather's going to do. You don't know what the conditions are going to do. So rather than plant a single tree and pin all your hopes and dreams on it, why not plant a group of about eight or 10 reasonably close together in a little group? Because what you think will be the trees of the future will probably die next week. And those trees that you've just popped in because they've been in the nursery for ages are probably going to be there 200 years later. So he was saying with climate change, with all of the different pests and diseases that are about, about actually planting a little community of plants and then seeing which ones evolve to then become the plants and trees of the future seems like a much healthier, more dynamic way of gardening. But you think the more experience you get and the more knowledge you get, you've got to pin everything down onto the specific tree or the specific herbaceous plant. Nobody knows what's going to happen. So it feels it feels a much more enjoyable and dynamic way of doing things. I so agree with that because somebody, a visitor to the garden here, once castigated me for the number of eucalyptus that, that we have in the garden um, because they're not native trees, you see. And I said to her, well, neither are sycamores, in actual fact. Um, yeah. Oh, you know, oh, well, she, she wasn't aware of that fact. But, I mean, the thing is, I started with... Um, eucalyptus because it was cheap it was easy from seed um, in actual fact we took I think four trees out I sowed the seed in 1991 they were 70 feet tall and we took them out last year because you know they just got to too big for where they were um, but like you we have planted a biodiversity level of species and they're not all from England by any means but you know, there are some that are and some that are not. And you're so right in the fact that I look at them, the, what, the trees that we planted seven, eight years ago, and there's one or two that have died, in actual fact. Yeah. Because we don't know what the climate's going to do. We are one of the driest areas in the country here, 20 inches of rain a year, um, which um, is, is very, very dry. Um, and together with climate change, and I don't know whether you're not probably old enough to realize or been through the changes that we've had in the last 40 50 years um and i have seen the fact that you know we now have eucalyptus self-seeding in our garden we have agapanthus self-seeding in the garden all over the place but it's become a bit of a weed you know so become yeah. a bit of a nuisance um and pittosporums which 45 years ago i wouldn't have dared plant outside they're now self-seeding um, so the, the, the climate has changed. To safeguard that, I quite agree with you with planting this vast variety of stuff. And also with things like phytophthora and honey fungus and ash dieback, all those things that we're wrestling with at the moment. Um, you look at a lot of the latest RHS advice, and I agree with it completely. It's saying you could get to the stage where you don't plant anything because you're worried about whether it's going to get a disease. It's just keep planting, keep planting trees and plant the numbers because you can always then select them a bit later on. Um, but the principle is don't stop planting. Don't get frightened and keep planting trees. Tom, can I talk just very briefly about 
box blight because we have box blight here in the garden and some places I have actually replaced box with other plants like you or a dwarf euonymus. I was having this conversation with Matthew Potage and we, we were talking, why do people have to say a good box substitute is? Why can't it be a good small hedge is? Why do we have to think in terms of box? Because our forefathers did and because it was it was a lovely plant for topiary and for lovely little low hedges and parterres and things like that. But, you know, are you planting other species in instead of box? I'm not at the moment. Uh, we have a lot of I had a lot of box blight in the in the wall garden here and I was umming and ahhing whether to remove it because being quite early on at West Dean to then start ripping out all those formal hedges in the wall garden <laughs> is pretty brave um, and had to walk around with a crash helmet on but umming and ahhing about the whole process and then I was talking to one of the ladies that works in the wall garden and she said Tom I'm just sick of looking at a half dead hedge. And I thought yes. that sums it up for me let's let's get it out so they've come out and we've planted almost up to the up to the path now and in the orchard we've allowed a, a sort of a perimeter of wood chip just so there's a bit of clearance between the meadow and the path and I really like the informality about it so I'm in no rush to replace it yeah I mean in terms of the replacing a box it's no cheap uh, project is it really I mean it's, no. it's, it's expensive in the numbers that you need to talk about and I I think there is Alex Quinata, and I'm really um, pleased that Matt and his team have done that box substitute, or not, well, alternatives to box rather than a substitute um, at Wisley. But I, I'm watching it with interest because I want to see how those alternatives look in five or ten years' time. Yeah, I quite because... agree with you, but I think I think Alex Quinata is one of my least favourite alternatives. <laughs> yeah. I really yeah. do. I mean, yeah. This is how it should be. It's a personal thing. You like one thing, I like another. You know, yeah. that's... That's people. Um, yes. But, but I personally, I don't like that because I find it, 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 I've tried it and I found that it didn't knit together terribly well. It, there, there are too many holes in it for it to have that formal look. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. If you try and find something that will replace box, you're always going to be disappointed. And I think, yeah. I think that's where my, my problem has been in the past, trying to find the substitution for box. I don't think there's one out there. No. Um, with all the other alternatives I think you can achieve that different look and we should be embracing yeah. that different look rather than trying to harp back to trying to find something um, that perhaps just isn't there and I, and I think that's been quite educational for me this morning because I, I think I've been quite sniffy about the alternatives because they don't look like box and I think yeah, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. head yeah clear yeah it. clear it yeah. Scott, thing, easily done um, <laughs> another thing I think that um, I remember from West Dean when I visited um, and I visited on a day when um, Sarah and I were in the peach house or nectarine house, whatever you call it. And we were pollinating with a rabbit's tail on the end of a cane, you know, one of those silly things. Um, but I do remember um, I think it was other pairs of apple trees trained with the most wonderful precision, not just against the wall, but freestanding. And the one that I think that could be made greater use of in ordinary people's gardens, suburban gardens, whatever you like, um, as a decorative tree and also a tree that's good for pollinators and also a tree that's going to give you some reward at the end of the season is a trained fruit tree. And the one that I remember is trained like a Christmas tree. Yes. On a, yeah. on a series of wire hoops going up. But I thought that's the kind of thing that everybody can have a go at. And it's, it's not that difficult, is it? No, you're right. Um, and also people shouldn't be frightened. I always think when you start talking about fruit, and pruning you can see people physically clench and their eyes widen it's always oh, fruit it's like you know you can prune an ornamental shrub all day every day and then you start putting an apple tree in front of somebody and for some reason they think the principles just go out the window um but you're absolutely right it, 
people should have a go at it. Um, and we've tried to continue that legacy um, that Jim and Sarah put in by putting lots of new dessert apples in and continuing to train them in lots of different different directions but yeah, if you cut them back hard you get that lovely pliable growth that you can then start to train and tie and have wonderful fun with and as you say fruit trees blossom fruit autumn color with some of those yep. pears what's not to love um, not in a way. small space yeah yeah i think you're absolutely right yeah good and that poor rabbit's still bouncing around without a tail <laughs> <laughs> I also think to go back to the kind of planting for a future where we're trying to conserve water and we might not have as much of it, people sometimes get a kind of an idea of what they think that planting is going to look like. And actually, it doesn't have to be the, the sort of um, the riverbed at East Ruston or Vicarage, just full of spiky plants and, and looking, you know, you know, celebrating a more of an arid desert. Look, it can be super colourful and bright and vibrant. Definitely, lots of not lots to of say that the riverbed isn't bright and vibrant because it definitely is. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, yeah, loads of, of lovely perennials, and I've got some in a bucket behind me. Actually, some of the sort of hardworking perennials that are quite happy with tougher conditions. Um, we got a lot of sort of the prairie style planting, those North American plants that seem to be very robust and very happy. Um, and yeah, you're right. Color doesn't have to be diminished through sort of um, lack of water there's plenty of really lovely things and it's growing them harder without all of the TLC and the muck and the mulch that goes around them where you get a much better flowering performance from something because it's slightly stressed and thinks it's going to cark it so it it tends to up the ante in terms of its flowering so uh, yeah the way you grow plants very different yeah you also get gardening that way you also get a true representation of what the plant is and how it grows because with all the muck and the mulch and all the rest of it, you're going to get something that looks as big as it's on steroids, perhaps. Um, so it's growing bigger, wider, fatter and all the rest of it. But you yeah. get the true plant, um, the true personality of the plant. Yes. And some things won't flower in those kind of conditions. If they're, they're used to more arid conditions, and you put them in a, in a lovely yeah. rich bed. They're just going to give you a lot of leaf and then you get disappointed. Yeah. yeah. So you said you had some things in a bucket behind you. I Can do. we have a little look? Bear with me. Is my cord long enough? <laughs> Story of my life. Right. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Rightio. So part, talking about some of those perennials, um, we've got Sanguisorba buckthorn, oh. or blackthorn, which has been a lot of, lot of fun. This is a very popular plant at the moment. I want to uh, liken it to lilac squirrels. Yeah. Lilac squirrel. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, a lot of people talking about that at the moment. Um, this is a, a perennial sunflower called Capanox star. It spreads a little bit, um, but it flowers really from around sort of mid-July right the way until the frost. And it's just it's got a little bit of mildew coming on now. Um, it will yeah. get mildew in dry conditions, Tom, won't it? I mean, that's it. You know, if you, if you don't like mildew, don't grow it. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of sheer yeah. flower power, it's, it's one of the ones to beat, really up on that bed and uh, how tall is the perennial sunflower it's got probably about sort of six seven feet with me um and then i've got a solidago which a lot of people get a little bit sniffy about <laughs> and i always end up apologizing when i talk about plants because i'm a real fan of like solidago and dahlias and gladioli and <laughs> i always feel that if i ever went to some sort of gardens illustrated convention i'd be shunned in the corner you know um but uh this solidago is fireworks so it's a lot less thuggish and it's much more open and delicate and marina christopher put me onto this and it's just a real cracking plant so yeah if you like goldenrod but been a bit put off by it fonts and uh, fireworks is worth looking at 
Yeah, I like that. And finally, getting myself all tangled up here, <laughs> is a Calimeris, which again will flower and flower and flower. Ooh. This is Mediva, and it performs, uh, provides a lovely sort of shrub-like growth to it. No staking required. And as the flowers fade, they kind of just get hidden by the new flowers that come through. And that will go on again from sort of midsummer right way and through till the autumn. And I've got a big planting of that with some Persicaria rosea. Oh. So you've got the sort of horizontal daily, uh, daisy flowers with the, the vertical Persicaria and they work in really well, well together. And in terms of my shunning from Gardens <laughs> Illustrated, which is a wonderful magazine I very much enjoy writing for. Um, uh, Austromeria. Oh, and I yeah. think Austromeria have suffered because of um, petrol stations, like Sweet Williams and Sunflowers, where you can buy them really cheaply. But this is one called Pandora, which is a lovely um, sort of rich purple colour. It was grown for the cut flower market, but it makes the most amazing garden plant i don't know if you grow a lot of austromeria um alan in terms of color but they're, they're hard to beat in terms of repeat yeah, I, I quite agree with you and i think another reason their popularity has been spoiled is because of the breeding of them as dwarf little plants so they look like dumplings and it really you know it, it's it's spoiled the look of the plant but i mean and the great thing is if, if people remember to pull them like you pull a, a piece of rhubarb but you know a stem of rhubarb don't cut them you'll get flowers for well, all summer into the autumn. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I shudder with that princess series. Yes. I'm not too. overly keen. No, um, but yeah, we're both, the... So we're both banned from Gardens Illustrated now, are we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, God knows where we'll end up. Um, <laughs> I have the telegraph on Saturday, Tom. Oh, yeah, I said, oh, yeah, I better watch my mouth, otherwise I could shoot myself in the foot on all angles, couldn't I? Um, but I've got a dahlia here called Karma Chock. Yay. Oh. Right. Yeah. Um, one of my absolute favorites. And I'm really intrigued by the Karma series. Again, it was grown for the cut flower market. And that almost sort of water lily type flower holds really well in a vase. So there's a, a huge movement with the single dahlia flowers, which I've got some here. Um, but I find they don't last in a vase, those single flowers. The petals shatter very quickly, whereas the more densely packed petals of the water lily types or the pom-poms tend to hold much longer. But Karma Chock is by far the most popular one of the Karma series, and I'm hoping to grow a range of these next year. But you've got sort of slightly bronze foliage and you've got the hint of chocolate about the flower as well. So it's, it's an absolute cracker. But here I've got a selection of rather outrageous dahlias. Oh, they're lovely. Yeah. Um, we're working with Witch Magazine this year, and they've asked us to grow a trial of dahlias from seed. So we have got about 26 different types of dahlias that we started sowing at the end of March, which germinated within three days. And I've now got this cactus hybrid mix, which is about six feet. So I've got six foot dahlia from seed in one year. And I really love it. The only, not necessarily good for cutting, but in terms of garden decoration, they've been great. There's an awful lot of very low ones, which sort of reminiscent of Bournemouth seafront, nothing wrong with that, but not necessarily my cup of tea. But these tall, tall ones have really, really been great. And, and the, the colour range from a packet of seed, again, for a couple of quid. Pretty, so was pretty that, cool. that, you know, in the same way that I've grown a pack of Bishop's Children before, that was just a cactus mix? That's it. Yeah. And we've got Bishop's Children in the in the trial and that's doing really well, too, but very similar. Uh, and you sort of hear about all the 
trials and tribulations of overwintering dahlias and whether you leave them in the ground, whether you dig them up. And actually, if you can get a six foot plant from seed from the end of March, you know, why bother? Well, and then also, it, arguably, my ones I grew, I grew from seed have overwintered better than some that I've bought as tubers. They've just sort of got on with it. Oh, right. Yeah. I suppose you get that seedling variation and you're probably getting yeah. quite a lot of robust genetics yeah. in a few of them. Yeah. Um, so, yes, that's my sort of little outside selection. And then I've got a few things from from inside. So I've got an Episcia, which is huge, which is growing in our tropical houses and this is an episcia hybrid but it's sort of reminiscent of an african violet but got these lovely red flowers and it if i can go up it trails as well so it trails oh, over the that. pot yeah, and really. what we're finding as gravel and rubbish drops all in his lap it sort of roots itself in the gravel <laughs> um, but it loves the warm it doesn't like the cold but they they are they've been tremendous and we are now peat free so we use peat-free compost, which is a massive challenge. And to me, the discussion about the peat-free debate, there is no debate because we just, you've got to have a very good reason for using it, I think, now. We've had to change the way we grow things. Some things have responded really well. We're having to supplementary feed a bit more than we used to. But things like the episcias haven't looked back with the, the free-draining compost and done really well. And in, it's very difficult to get colour in tropical houses, but anthuriums, are great and this one is called black love um but it's got a lovely dark dark flower and, and they're one of my favorite plants in the tropical house because they just go on and on and they last for ages and we wouldn't be able to talk about west dean without the old chili <laughs> coming into shot and this is one called calico with uh with purple foliage um and the fruits start to turn red as they as they develop and They've been hugely interesting in terms of growing them in peat-free compost. They've loved the peat-free to begin with. So you get this real rush of vegetative leafy growth. But then it gets to sort of end of July and they, they run out of steam with that peat-free. And um, so we found that with the cooler temperatures this summer and the nutritional problems, we're having to feed them quite a lot to try and get them to stay buoyant through till the end of September before we start dismantling the display. So real learning curve. And... Um, but it's, it's an interesting time. And certainly with West Dean, with the way everything is very uniform in the past, you know, the way we set everything out in the glass houses, we haven't got any growing houses behind the scenes. The glass houses have to evolve throughout the year to suit our needs. So in the winter, there's an awful lot of them that are dedicated to propagation. And you walk into, you just walk into a glass and every batch of plants was in the same size pot, the same color, labeled absolutely brilliantly. But in terms of plastic use, we're now in the stage where we are reusing and recycling everything, every colour pot, every shape and size, because I can't justify going and spending lots of money on new plastic pots. Um, the guys here used to wash plastic pots before I was here, and it was a you know, hygiene is it's very, very important. But nowadays, we've got quite a multicoloured potting shed. Um, <laughs> it's just a different time. It's very different time. So in terms of peat-free, plastic use, chemical use, trying to manage the garden in a very different way, but achieving similar results. Um, yeah. Doesn't, uh, I'm not bored. No. <laughs> I mean, on top of everything else, that's the whole extra level. Um, yeah. And of course, then the pandemic. And I'm sure that kind of cut your workforce. So many places who normally have loads of volunteers. I think that was a place, aside from furloughing or anything, losing volunteers a lot of the time was an extra challenge. 
massively. So we um, went from a, a team of seven and we then went down to a team of one. So because the college, uh, a lot of the income from the college is through the short courses, all that had to stop. So a way to sort of preserve the foundation was to, to furlough the gardeners. So it was myself and one other gardener took it in turns to come in and we just let, had to let the grass grow. My biggest concern was the, the glasshouse collections that they're very difficult to replace. So we had to preserve those. So it was one of us on site uh watering and that do you remember that first lockdown how warm that spring was crazy yeah. warm um we hadn't finished all the repotting so repotting and watering but it gave me a very intimate relationship with the glass houses because it was just me and my team affectionately call it dad fm so i was sort of singing away to lionel <laughs> richie um and getting to know getting to know my plants uh but it was a long long time best part of um, a year before we started to get a, a reasonable amount of the gardeners back, started to cut the grass, the volunteers had come back. And everybody's been really understanding because if you've got West Dean, which has got that reputation for precision, being immaculate, not a weed in the place, then trying to manage that after a pandemic and box blight and all this sort of stuff. We um, had to make a couple of the guys redundant, which was really sad as well. So the team was reduced a bit. Um, but everybody's really pulled together. Volunteers have been fantastic. I've got a really great core team now around me. Um, and I think it's once we, we're getting there and I think it's going to take the autumn and some of the winter before we're back in in control again. But uh, but we've learned a lot of lessons, too. And, yeah. and where we haven't been able to manage things so intensely, you sort of look around and think Actually, that's quite nice where we haven't curtailed it so much. You know, things like the the meadows in the orchard, leaving them till the end of July. And then cutting them down, you know, seeing all of the cranes bill and all of the, the orchids and mm. and all the pollinators that have benefited from that. So it's it's been interesting uh, and learning. And I think reflecting with the team, we're all absolutely cream crackered, but we sort of found a bit more of a balance going forward, I think, sort of to, to learn how to enjoy the garden and be part of it rather than focus on the stresses of the things that you haven't done. Yeah, I think it's been quite an interesting process over the last sort of 18 months. Yeah. And, and when we talked to Michael Marriott um, in our Rose special, he said places like David Austin, there were roses they didn't even know really that they provided good hips um, because yeah. they quite often would be deadheaded. But then when people were on furlough and they couldn't deadhead as much, you suddenly realised, and I cannot remember which one in particular, um, just suddenly they're like, oh, actually, the hips on this are, are really worth worth keeping. keeping. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It gave everybody a real opportunity. And without the public coming in, um, you felt there was a bit more of a relaxed feel about the way and you could could explore things a bit more. I think you just hit the nail on the head, Tom, because I think one of the things that I've noticed from visitors here is the fact that our garden is not maintained. So there's not a weed within, you know, it's just not that we can't do it. Um, and so we do have and always have had probably that kind of relaxed feel. And there was a lady came last week and she said to me, I went to Wisley last week. I prefer yours because it's relaxed. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, and I can understand what she means. And this is also sort of the atmosphere and everything else. Um, I can understand what she means. But then when you get an institution like the RHS with Wisley, I mean, it has to be the way it is. Yes. Because, you know, people don't people will criticize them if they see a weed. If they criticise me, I'll tell them not to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. And people's expectations have changed, I think, which has been a good thing. Yeah. So um, 
you know, when people visit gardens, um, if it is a little bit more informal, not sort of necessarily worrying about that finickety detail and appreciating the wider wider garden i mean the arboretum and has become one of the most popular parts of the garden because people yeah. just wanted to stretch out into the into the landscape and they mm -hmm. weren't so worried about whether your begonia needed deadheading in the glass house you know they were there for a very different type of experience yeah. and I th yeah i think it's been positive and also with things like catering you know we can get very caught up in why are people visiting a garden? And if you're not serving soya milk, skinny macchinos or whatever it might be, <laughs> people get very upset. But hopefully people are now understanding that actually visiting gardens is, is different. It's about enjoying the space, enjoying that creativity and not necessarily about having that frothy coffee and the piece of, of um, lemon drizzle, which fair enough when I go to a garden, it's the first thing that I'm looking for. But... <laughs> Generally, I, people need to be maybe less disappointed if that's not all there, because visiting a garden is for very different reasons. And I think people have tuned in. I don't go to Alan's for anything other than the lime and zucchini cake, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Great room. Never mind the plants. Who needs 32 acres? Just give me cake. <laughs> I remember being at Parham and seeing a group of ladies come in and you had a, a sort of a crossroads at the start of the garden where you could go into the nursery or you could go around the garden. And I was walking behind them and they said, oh, do we go to the shop or do we go around the garden first? And when the other one said, come on, duty before pleasure, let's go around the garden. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> um, you brought along some wonderful plants today and I'm really excited about the, the drought planting. I think particularly um, I never have enough time to garden and watering takes ages and also I work in the evenings so it's really hard sometimes to find a time to water when it's not sort of under the midday sun. Um, and I also think for the amount of people who want to get into gardening, a lot of young people they are raising children and doing nine to five jobs and I don't know, going to the gym or running or whatever and finding time to, to water is, is really difficult. So although obviously you've got to water them in to establish them, if we can get into those sorts of gardening that are more sustainable, but also more attainable, I think that's, um, that's really exciting. Definitely. And, and gardening is about having fun and being creative. And I think we, as an, an industry, we can put people off by being too technical and saying to people, there's only one way to do this. And you can only do it this way. If you can't do it this way, you failed. Um, so by just getting out into the garden and being creative, Alan talking about training a fruit tree or even building a bug hotel or creating a little drought garden, if it goes wrong, doesn't matter. Who cares? Try something else. You know, I, I think we just need to encourage people to try things and not make them frightened of failure in terms of gardening. And I think we've been a bit guilty of that in the past. Yeah. Well, it's a bit like you were saying about the types of plants. Mm. All plants are welcome. If you don't like them, you know, we're all different. Yeah. Um, talking of growing stuff from seed, that brings us around to Flomo because mine is going to be something I think I'm going to try from seed. If you've never tuned into this before, this particular podcast, Flomo is something we kind of came up with because it's, well, it's how I live my life going around going, I want to grow that. So it is a floral or plant-based sort of fear of missing out. And um, in mine, th this sort of all came about through Instagram this week. Uh, I put up a photo of my Cephalaria gigantia, which is really not gigantic because it's in the wrong place. And so it sulked for a bit and then it shot up some very short flower stems. And so I posted one of these. And um, in talking about Cephalaria to people on Instagram, a lovely person called Sibhed Sarah said, oh, if you like Cephalaria, have you ever tried, I'm going to consult my notes, Dipsacoides, which I haven't. 
Um, and so she's going to hopefully send me some seeds. So thank you, Sarah. I'm going to try and grow it from seed just to, I suppose, extend the season. I've never grown. I think it's a bit shorter, might flower a bit later, possibly. Um, but I'm excited to try it anyway. And do it now. I think what I've, I've experimented recently with sanguisorba and just um, managed to buy, buy one from Graham Goff at the time, got it back and there was a seed head on the top of the pot. So I just sort of broke it up amongst my fingers and then put it in a um, in a pot, covered it with with compost and it germinated within a week. So I've had some really good germination from sanguisorba and things like echinacea at this time of year. So when the echinacea flower finishes, autumn sowing, you know, and if you're not sure about when to sow it, try it in the autumn, try it in the spring and just do it little and often and, and wait for that sort of um, combination that you get right. But autumn sowing is worth it. It's doing. interesting you say that because I, I always grow, grow all live around a flora in the spring um, and I've done an autumn sowing and I've got way better germination. Yeah, with those cooler temperatures, um, if once the heat of the summer has gone. How do you find Orleo? I find that plant very hard. <laughs> um, so do I. Yeah, trying to get that right. Very, very good. Yeah. sort of I don't know 30 centimeters and all of a sudden you look at it funny and it dies um, <laughs> well, I'm glad it's not just me I persist because I really love it um though I have to plant it in very specific places away from the dog because th those seeds if they get in her hair I just I have to cut all her hair off <laughs> well going back to your cephalaria or dipsacoides it is uh, in actual fact a, a very creamy white scabious and I've, I'm just looking at a site here and it's covered with insects. So um, it's bee friendly and butterfly friendly. So it ticks the little boxes on those, both those counts, but it grows to around six feet tall. <laughs> so, so maybe not as short as I thought it was going to be. No, maybe, maybe not. I was going <laughs> uh, to ask Tom, um, in your, um, where you're going to make your, your field or meadow full of seed growing plants, um, have you thought of including a self-sowing annual that that blooms for a greater part of the summer season and that is origeron annuus oh, i love that plant it would be yeah. it would be good to do it um it drove me mad at param because i tried to save the seed and put it in a seed tray and it just wouldn't do it no so you have to you have to dig the seedlings up yeah it would yeah. seed itself all around the area but if i tried to do it in a seed tray it's in, on your bike yeah. power you know it's not going to do it so um i think it's a lovely thing so yeah i would like to to get that back again and well, I've only, i mean this ridiculous thing i've only recently used it myself i was introduced to it in a garden oh, five six years ago i suppose um and i used it this year digging up the self-sown seedlings um which really did work well and just threading it through borders and it, it's it's been a dream it flowers for ages, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah it no, does. you're right. I'll um I'll make a note of that because that is something that would work really well. And I and mm. I'm hoping with this um with this meadow that it's going to evolve. You know, I'm gonna come up with different species or get recommendations. I went to a talk this week with um Sarah Price, the garden designer, yep. and some of the plants that she uses were were absolutely dreamy and sort of species materials that would work really well and that kind of environment. So just to keep adding them as time goes by is a really good way to sort of stay connected with that space. You know, you know one thing you're going to have to watch out for, Tom, don't you? What's that? that? Somebody walking around with a packet of seed, uh, a pocket full of seed, and dropping the occasional pinch here and there, rather like <laughs> Miss Wilmot's ghost, you know, the, the yes. ring him. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Depends what they're dropping. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tom, where are you at with your Flomo? What do you want to grow? Well, I sort of get um, frustrated that the, the gardens that I've worked in aren't necessarily sheltered um, and 
acidic, particularly at the beginning of the season, you know, with um, camellias and roadies and all those wonderful, wonderful ericaceous shrubs, calmias that do wonderful things. Um, so I think I, I'm falling in love with camellia sasanqua the sort of slightly earlier flowering species that starts to flower around Christmas time. And I always get slight envy uh, about people that grow camellias, uh, Sasanqua. And I went to a nursery recently and they were selling one for half price. And I picked one up and bought it back. And it's, I've been done that terrible thing. I think oh, I'm going to get a nice big pot. And I'm going to pot that by the front door, <laughs> feed it with rainwater. So I've got my camellia. So I have got my camellia, but it's sat in the same pot in the same place in the patio and I give it enough water just to keep it alive <laughs> I have bought a pot so I will get there but it's taken far too long um, but I need to pull that together but um, yeah a nice range of camellia sasanquas or slightly tender ericaceous shrubs um, I, I sort of do to get a bit of envious about when I visit places like Wisley or go down towards the southwest. Yeah I completely understand that. Alan where are you at with your Flomo? Well, my Flomo is a simple common old thing. And I suddenly realised the other day when I was driving that I hadn't got it. Um, and I, I love to increase the number of late flowering shrubs that we have in the garden here. And at the moment, we've got Escalonia ivii and uh, Escalonia bifida is about to open its flowers as well. They're both hugely popular with butterflies and everybody loves them. We have buddlias and then we go on to the Escalonias. And it's really fantastic for butterflies. Um, but I haven't got the um, autumn flowering tamarisk. I mean, it's a common old plant, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. And there's one in the suburban garden that I regularly drive past and I, they've obviously cut it back early in the year to pollard it to a, like a stump, um, like a pole, if you see what I mean. And then these upright branches and the freshest, freshest of green with pale pink flowers, mid pink flowers, really, I think. Um, I saw it yesterday and I just thought, well, I've got to have that. Why haven't I got it? And I, think, I don't know what it is. I think it's one of those things you see in somebody's garden. But if you go to a garden centre, they, they don't. nobody has them anymore. I think they were popular years ago and perhaps not so now. But I think with our extended season, the climate change we're going through, often, I mean, I don't know about you, Tom, but up here we often don't get a frost, a frost until way after Christmas. And we have that extended autumn scene um, where the weather becomes benign and it goes on a very long time and it's, it's, it seems a silly thing not to take advantage of that. You're absolutely right and I think there needs to be a bit of a renaissance in shrubs. I yeah. think there's you look at sort of a lot of the, the show gardens and, and garden trends I think shrubs need that um, need to come through again and I think not many people or not enough people involve shrubs with their designs as well so hopefully things like the tamarics and other other really cracking shrubs that provide the backbone to gardens people will get turned on to can i uh quickly ask obviously we will uh, we will need to wrap things up but can i quickly ask for any shrubs that would be top of your i feel like if you say people need to grow more shrubs we need to give them some shrubs <laughs> need to get in there yeah okay with some names i am working on a, a winter stem landscape at the moment so i'm getting into my willows and my dogwoods um and there's a lovely willow called salix irrorata which is a white willow um, and you can get that for online if you go to a, a basket willow or a willow producer they'll often send you a fistful of um, hardwood cuttings at this time uh, sort of November time so it's salix irrorata but I think the spring flowering shrubs things like corwitzias that we don't know doitzias that are unbelievable shows of color that people don't necessarily grow because they're nervous about the pruning um, so yeah, yeah, some of those more obscure spring flowering shrubs, I think people should go for. Yeah. 
Well, it's been an inspiration, Tom, an hour of just so many wonderful plants. And also, I just think good for the soul, you know, don't worry about pruning and experiment and don't worry if people don't like the plants you like. I think this has just been full of really good gardening mantras. <laughs> it's not going to take me sort of the best part of half an hour to put all these plants back in the various greenhouses, <laughs> um, but it keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> well, we appreciate you gathering all the things for us to ooh and ah over. It's been lovely. And thank you both for having me, actually. And it's been nice to sort of finally link up. So thank you for your patience, too. <laughs> we got a chili in. We wanted to make sure we got a chili in and we did it. We got there. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And happy gardening. Happy gardening, everybody. Bye. Cheers, Tom. All the best. <laughs> thank you. Hey, Fordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.